Hello and welcome to the Yarniax podcast. This is episode 45, which we're recording in advance. So we're recording on Friday, August 30th, although you won't hear it for quite a little while after that because we have a special guest on the podcast today and we should introduce ourselves first. I'm Gail and I'm Charlene and our special guest today is Deb Robson. Hello, Deb. How are you? I'm good. Thanks. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. We're so excited to have you on the show. Now, I first heard of Deb through a class on Craftsy that is a free class yes, called Know Your Wool. And Deb is the amazingly informative instructor of that class. And since taking the class, Deb, I have become fascinated <laughs> by different breeds of wool. I have swatched with about six different breeds, and I am just fascinated. That makes me very happy, and I'd like to hear more about breeds. Okay. Yeah, we're looking forward to hearing more about wool from you. Yeah. And just out of the strangeness of coincidences, you also just released a new book, which Charlene and well, I have been talking about <laughs> interviewing you for several months now, and I didn't know you had a new book out. So what I'd like to start with is letting our listeners know about your original the first book, which is the Fleece and Fiber Source Book, which you do refer to as a great resource in your Craftsy class, and your new book. Why don't you tell us about the new book? Okay. The new book is The Field Guide to Fleece, and it's the book we intended to write when the Field Guide or the Fleece and Fiber Source Book happened instead. We meant to write a small book. <laughs> that people could take with them to festivals. And we were, oh. I were yeah, I wrote it with Carol Acarius, and we were working on the original material for it. And the publisher liked what we were doing so much that they said, keep going. And then they kept saying, keep going for four years. So we ended up with the four pound book that you can't take to a fiber festival very easily. So we kept saying to the publisher, which is story publisher, Publishing and they're fantastic to work with. We kept saying, we still want a little book. <laughs> so that's what we have now. And we based it on the Fleece and Fiber source book, but we also took it a little farther in, in some different directions. All the photography is new. We got more sheep in there that we couldn't cover the first time. So it was fun, and it does fit in a bag or a basket to go to a festival. So why don't you give us a little background about the Fleece and Fiber source book, too, for the listeners who may not be familiar with that. I've seen it, and I'm just, I think it's an amazing resource. So from the beginning, you said it took four years to write that? Well, it only took four years because we'd both been preparing for a few decades in advance. Wow. <laughs> um, it's the book I wanted to have on my shelf. We have had really good fiber resources. Um, but I wanted something that had more information and color pictures of locks and sheep next to the, the fibers. And we ended up covering all of the animal source fibers that we could get our hands on and all of the sheep breeds that English-speaking fiber folk might reasonably get their hands on. And we had to draw that boundary around it because there are about 1,200 sheep breeds in the world. Um, and we actually only covered 125. Well, only covered 125. Plus <laughs> all the camelids 
and rabbits and yaks and muskoxen and so yeah it grew so that and that so like you said that's the book you would have on your shelf right that's your in-depth look at 125 different sheep breeds the big encyclopedia right (laughs) and i've heard people refer to that also as a great coffee table book just in terms of it's interesting to leaf through even if you're not a knitter or a fiber crafter we were blessed with the designer who is mary belgos um, and with Story's support of the book in terms of photography and production, they did a fantastic job. We had the same designer for the Field Guide to Fleece. So the books look and feel good. We, we feel just incredibly fortunate um, at the production job that was done on these books. And, yeah, they're coffee table books, too. Even the little one is coffee table book. <laughs> okay. Excellent. Okay. So, the, so I have not seen the handbook yet, the Guide to Fleece, or the Field Guide to Fleece, rather. Is that... Are the same 125 breeds covered in that, but in less detail, or are there fewer breeds covered in the field guide? I think we got about 100 in there. You know, they put stuff on covers, and it may not be exactly the number. It's at least that many. We did more on the Scandinavian breeds because we were able to get some more information. Is a lot of other species. There are a number of breeds that we see primarily in felting. So not so much for spinners and knitters and weavers, although they do show up there, like Spellsow. Spellsow is a fantastic tapestry wool. It's a great felting wool. And we do get our hands on it. So we just, we try to make it what you could look to for information if you came across a breed that was in one of your regular suppliers that you didn't recognize. Excellent. And that's how I've heard people, especially spinners, refer to your the your fleece and fiber source book is definitely their encyclopedia of wool and fiber if it's something that they're unsure about because you do have the great coverage of the pictures you know this is what the sheep looks like this is what the fleece looks like this is what the locks look like and you give the great information about how it can be used that's the plan (laughs) now and speaking of how the wool can be used so in your know your wool class on craftsy you came up with your own kind of four categories for wool to make it easier for kind of the novice to understand for, them for the rest of us. Yeah, because I consider <laughs> myself a novice. I'm I'm not I'm, a novice knitter, but I am a novice when it comes to knowing about am, wool. Yes. Both I I consider myself a novice. So the four categories you have, do you want to tell us a little bit about those and the dif- or how you define each one, I guess would be the best place to start. Wool is infinite. So when I went out to do categories, I had to think, okay, what are some useful, quick ways to organize? And almost all of the wool that we see generally in fibers, yarn stores, in yarn, is going to be either in fine, so like the merinos, or one of the mid-grade wools that generally come from meat breeds. So unless you are actively looking for specific breeds, those are the ones you're going to come across and be dealing with. And and so when you say, you know, I'm, I'm a novice at wool, yeah, almost all of us are. And th- those are the two pieces that you'll see easily and start to identify. 
So if you see a generic knitting worsted, that's going to be a mid wool. And if you see merino, it's fine. Okay, so you have the fine and the medium. Those are the ones you're going to come across and start to identify first. Okay, in the yarn store, is this fine? Is this medium? Okay, um, the fine ones will work next to the skin for almost everyone. The medium ones are more durable, and some people can wear them next to the skin, some can't. The other two categories that I brought in, you're likely only to encounter if you're a spinner or if you're starting to look for breed-specific yarns. One of those is the long wools, okay? And they are shinier fibers. They are sleeker. They are, again, more durable. The only long wool you're going to see right now in yarn stores, and I'm glad to see it there, is Blueface Lester, which is sometimes called BFL. It's very fine for a long wool, and that's part of why it's succeeding in the marketplace right now. The other fourth category, so we've got fine, medium, and long, and the fourth category that I put in there for people to understand is double-coated, which are fleeces that have two components. There's an undercoat that is finer, and there's an outer coat that's longer. You're not going to see these quite so often, although Icelandic yarns are going to be double-coated ones. And some of the Shetlands, um, and you'll see, see others. If you go into weaving yarns, you'll see more of them. You'll see a caracal and things like that. Um, but if you understand those four categories, you'll understand, like, the big buckets that the yarns, that the fibers fall into. That help? Yes, that's very helpful. Yeah. And I like the way that you qualified the what we would see in a yarn store. That was really helpful. Yes. Yeah, because not everybody has the... Not everybody is able to go out and seek the specific breeds. A lot of us just go into the yarn store and then they have what they have and aren't really sure what we're using. So that helps. <laughs> Although we do, I see Merino on tags really often now. Yeah. So, Yeah, Merino is the predominant breed in the world. And it's a little confusing because there are actually different breeds of Merino. Oh, okay. So some merino is softer than others. Oh, interesting. Yeah. But overall, you know, all merino is a fine wool. Okay. Yeah. And you said the fine wools are the close to the skin, soft, and you did not refer to them as durable. So I, I didn't. No. Now, okay, before we get into the nitty-gritty about kind of microns and staple length, which <laughs> I'm fascinated by those whole concepts. We just realized that we totally skipped our normal segments. So we, <laughs> I apologize. I've been so looking forward to this interview that I just jumped right in. But what are you knitting right now? I'm crocheting. <laughs> that's that's yeah, that, great because often Gail and I are crocheting too. So we would love to hear about what you are working on. Okay. Um, life has thrown me a whole lot of curves lately. Um, things have been happening in my family and friends that have taken a lot of energy. So what I am making is a single crochet bag that I'm inventing as I go along. Um, it may, it looks like it's about the right size to fit my new iPad mini that I got for traveling, uh -huh. but if not, it will fit something else. Right. <laughs> that's a, that's a perfect attitude for a travel project or yes. a project when life throws you curveballs. <laughs> yep. Yep. 
Um, I recently completed a cardigan uh, by Megan Goodacre, who is known as the Trixie Knitter. Um, and I think it's called her Sweet Oak Cardigan. Okay. And I made it with Jameson and Smith Shetland Chunky. Ooh, nice. Yes, in charcoal. It's a two-ply worsted spun yarn. And they ended up making it for Chunky. It's quite light in feel. Um, it's going to be a travel sweater for some upcoming voyages. And I'm really pleased with it. And you live in a pretty cold climate, too, don't you? I'm in Colorado. Right. Yeah. So those chunky sweaters probably come in very handy there. Yeah. Now, and the single crochet bag that you're making up as you go, what type of wool are you using for that project? It's another Shetland project. Okay. And there are two, uh, manu well, actually, there are several spinners of Shetland yarns in Shetland. And the cardigan I just mentioned is from Jameson and Smith, which is one of the firms. The little bag I am making with Jameson's Spindrift, and it's confusing. They're two different companies. Okay. And there are some smaller outfits there spinning other yarns, and I've been experimenting with those as well. But this is Jameson's Spindrift. Yeah, I've knit with that. I really like that. It's a fingering weight, right? It's a fingering weight, yeah. Nice. Yeah. So are you doing color work in your bag, or is it one color? Yeah, I am doing color work. Because one color would be just too boring. Yeah, I, I know. I know what you mean. And they actually, Jameson has so many colors in yeah, their spin they drift. Do. They do. I think they have 240. Oh, my goodness. And they're all beautiful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's part of the fun, picking the colors. <laughs> yeah, I'm right now knitting a beret, and I'm using 100% Rambouillet, which I picked up after watching your Craftsy class. I've purchased quite a few different breeds and I'm knitting that in Rambouillet but I'm going to do duplicate stitch in some of the areas on the braid to pull out some color and I'm going to use my Jameson Spindrift for that purpose the duplicate stitch. Excellent. <laughs> yeah I'm really looking forward to that. Two different breeds of wool in the same cap. <laughs> that works. So what are you knitting Charlene? Right now I've got a shawl in my hands and it is the askew shawl by Lisa Much, which I have deemed to be my podcast knitting as of the last few episodes because it's easy to pick up and put down and there's garter stitch on one side and stockinette stitch on the other, which is soothing, comforting, and I'm enjoying it. I gotcha. <laughs> now, we also have a regular segment, Deb, called What Are You Stalking? And by stalking we mean like on Ravelry or online, it's the the pattern or the wool breed or the the type of genre of project you're looking for that you're kind of obsessed with at the moment. Is there anything that qualifies as that for you? Well, at the moment, I'm totally obsessed with Shetland. Ah, okay. The sheep, the wool, the traditions that are associated with them, which include laces and color work, along with anything else you want to do. But my focus is on the sheep and their fiber. There, there are other people doing work on the knitting traditions and doing a fine job. So I'm going just back a little farther and looking at the fiber for Shetlands. And I'm looking at them in Shetland and in the mainland UK and North America and anywhere I can find them. So the Shetland Islands, you're, that's where they've originated, right? Yes. Now, what is interesting about the breed of Shetland sheep? That's, that's something we should know. Oh, don't get me started. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's off 
five. Well, this, this is your current project right now. So why don't you tell us a little bit about it, since it's not only what you're stocking, it's what you're working on right now. So, Yeah. Uh, Shetlands are really interesting, and they were the hardest breed to write up for the Fleece and Fiber source book because they are very diverse genetically, and they produce a lot of different types of fleeces, although they're there are some commonalities within that. About two years ago, I was asked to write an article for um, the Guild of Weavers, Spinners, and Dyers in the UK on the history of English sheep breeds, British sheep breeds, not English. And that got me into the whole history of breeds again, again, again. And then I was asked to write for the New Ply magazine an article about first sheep, which ended up being about domestication. And there's a lot to say about domestication. But what I came back to was that Shetlands encapsulate a great deal about domestication history and about the way breeds move around the world and the way individual people choose what they want in their own flock and how different strains develop and therefore we end up with different types of fleeces and I wanted to look at both the history from way back and the contemporary wool market and what this says about the thousands of years of relationships between humans and sheep and I think Shetlands will let us give have a lens to see a lot about other breeds was that short enough <laughs> Yeah, that's great. <laughs> and it also, as you were speaking, it was making me think. One of the things in your craftsy class that you said that, in my naivete, I just was kind of. It took me back. And you said it just a moment ago too, that some sheep breeds are raised primarily for meat. Well, oh, I should okay. have realized that, but I just think of them a hundred percent in terms of they provide <laughs> yarn for people to knit or fiber. So with the Shetland breeds. Were they primarily started or domesticated it for their meat or the fleece, or is it both? Both. Okay. Um, yeah. And meat is the driving force in the economics of sheep throughout the world today. Okay, that makes sense. I just, it for some reason, it had never occurred to me well, because my filter is small. We're wool-centric. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and in history, there have been times where wool was by far the driving force. Right. Oh, yeah. but, but with population changes, meats become the bigger deal. Now, I'm a vegetarian, so I'm all about the wool. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I've, I don't, yeah. I'm not quite a vegetarian, but I don't eat sheep or I, Yeah. <laughs> Any animal that produces the wool either. or fibers <laughs> that I use in my hands, you know, that's just too sad. <laughs> so the Shetland, see, now I'm fascinated by Shetland and I'm going to have to go out and learn more about it. So I did they originate in the Shetland Islands, the breed of sheep? Well, the, the sheep moved there from the point of original domestication, which was in Southwest Asia, probably. I mean, that's where all the evidence points. Wow. Although there may have been domestication events also in China. So we think of domestication as something that happened once. Okay, so, you know, like the wolves, the friendly wolves came close to the fire and domesticated into dogs, and it just happened in one place, and they spread. Mm -hmm. 
Well, maybe not. Maybe it happened in more than one place. And with sheep, they're thinking five places at this point. Wow. Yeah. Which is part of why we have so much diversity, because they can crossbreed then, which is, I can go off on a tangent there too. But from that original, those original points of domestication, people move them around. So the sheep that were in Shetland came originally from Southwest Asia and changed probably along the way and then have changed since they were there. So they didn't like magically appear there. They came from somewhere else. Okay. But the breed uh, gained its identity in the Shetland Islands by people breeding in particular ways for particular qualities that they wanted. And isn't that ability the fact that they move the breeds around so they become somewhat genetically isolated so that they can interbreed that helps to make different qualities in fleece that we then appreciate as fiber crafters? It is indeed. Okay, that's what I Exactly. See, it's all just like you said, you could go off on a tangent because it's all just so fascinating. (laughs) Definitely, definitely. So, Gail, are you stalking anything in particular? I'm actually... Because I've been doing so much swatching over the last few months leading up to this, I have two skeins of Coriadale four-ply fingering in my stash from Alpenglow Yarns that I bought at Stitches West, and I'm looking for the perfect project (laughs) to use those for, and I think I'm going to do the Antarcticus shawl, but I don't know if the Coriadale is going to give me the right drape, etc., so I have to swatch with it still, Yeah. like Deb teaches in her class, so you can get the character of the yarn and know what it's going to do for you. Right. So that's what I'm stalking is the perfect project for those two skeins of Corydale. And in terms of the wool conversation, I have been doing the same thing Gail has been. I have two big skeins of BFL, Blueface Lester, that I purchased also at Stitches. And I have been swatching and trying to figure out a project for that as well. And so... Deb, you had mentioned just a little bit ago that BFL was one of the breed-specific yarns that you were seeing more of available in stores and at um, yarn shows, and Gail and I have noticed that as well. So I'm wondering what qualities does BFL have that is creating this interest and is kind of moving that from a more specific marketing effort towards something that's obviously more widespread as it moves into local yarn stores. Yeah, more commercial from our fiber perspective. Right, right. Right. BFL has the advantage of being relatively soft and having more durability than a merino or a standard fine wool. As I mentioned, it's a long wool. Mm -hmm. But But it's quite a fine... Fine long wool, that's weird to say. Okay, <laughs> so fine in the sense of um, the fibers are slender, and that helps with its softness. It is a more durable yarn than merino, so for me it's a far better choice for socks because I'm really, really hard on my socks. Oh, okay, and I have been seeing more sock yarns yeah, BFL with sock. CFL yeah. in it, yes. There are right. It has great drape, and it will take dyes beautifully. They will just gleam because it's got a lustrous surface. Oh, interesting. Yeah, you said that the long wools are shiny and sleek, right? Yes. So, yeah. 
Now, okay, so you've referred to long and fine, and I know that there are two correlations to that. So if we're looking at the technical nomenclature of the fibers and fleece, I've heard microns and I've heard staple length. And I know most spinners probably know what those are and how they relate to the, the wool. But how from the knitter's perspective, so I don't spin, but I knit. So what is a micron diameter and a staple length? What does that mean in terms of the yarn you're going to buy from the yarn store and knit? Okay, they're two different things. And let's talk first about micron counts and diameters. Okay. There are and have been a number of different ways to evaluate the softness or micron diameter or Bradford count was used um, of a yarn, which is which is all a way of kind of talking about the fiber diameter. Okay. A slim fiber diameter going to generally be a softer and less durable fiber, although there is no absolutely direct correlation there. But but for the most part, if you have a fine diameter fiber, say 18 microns, it's going to be soft. If you have one at 35 microns, it's going to be durable, but not soft. So okay. does merino, as one of the more common ones that our listeners will probably be able to relate to, merino fall, definitely falls into closer into the 18 range? 18 to 23 probably, although it's going to push both ends okay. of that. So you'll find some very expensive, very carefully bred and processed merino probably down at 14 or 15 microns. The stuff's really expensive. Mm-hmm. You can actually get it down to 12. But um, don't quote me on those exact numbers, but it's ballpark. Yeah, okay. Um, We have within the general range of sheep throughout the world lost some of the finest micron fleeces over the years by breeding more fur meat in a way. So some ancient fibers show up even finer than we are getting now. Interesting. Yeah, it is. And that's part of the research area that's like, mm, should I be talking about this because I don't know enough yet? But should I be talking about any of it because I don't know enough yet? I mean, there, it's endless. It's endless. Yeah. And you know so much more than we do. So. <laughs> well, and I've been at it for 40 years. Right, exactly. You know, and I'm still ignorant. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I've learned a few things. Um, so industry uses a 30 micron cutoff point. Um, for kind of, is it going to be itchy or not? Oh. So that if most of your fibers are at 30 microns or under in a yarn, most people are going to be able to tolerate it against their skin. Now, if you want something really soft, you're going to want it down 23 or so. Okay. Or, or finer. Now, you're not going to get a micron count on your yarn for no. most people. <laughs> so... Um, all you can do here is understand general concepts. Right. So if you have one or two percent of the fibers, maybe three percent over thirty microns, you're still going to be okay. Okay. Now, every individual is different. Yes. So there are going to people be people who are going to be scratching their skin off if they've got twenty-five microns, and there are people who can wear thirty-two, thirty-five, and say, "Oh, I'm fine." Okay. So. 
my daughter's one of those, like, it's got to be down about 20. Okay. You know, she, her skin is just sensitive. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we just live with that. <laughs> so she gets the good stuff, right? <laughs> yeah, she just gets the good stuff. You know, it's like, I'm thinking, okay, I'm raising, you know, a caveat kid. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, so that's micron measurements of fiber diameters. And it's not an absolute that a fine micron fiber is definitely not going to itch. For example, the tips of New Zealand possum fibers are five microns. Oh, wow. Which is very, very fine. Yeah. Some people find they're sensitive to that. And what I think that's about is the flexibility of that fiber. I think it's not very flexible. Oh, okay. Okay. So, um, no cut and dried rules, but def definitely useful general principles. Okay, yeah, that's fascinating. Definitely. So 30 definitely. microns is the industry-recognized number for next-to-the-skin softness. Yeah, and, and you'll, you won't find that super soft, but you'll find that, like, you can knit a sweater and the cuffs against your wrist will be fine. You know, the collar against the back of your neck is not going to annoy you unless you're a super sensitive right. person. Right. Well, here's a question that just popped into my head. If you look at the workhorse yarns that you find in the local yarn store, you know, something like the Cascade 220 variety that are the more affordable end that are, I think you said those are probably more medium wool blends. blends They're medium blends. wool, average, and it's a yarn that pretty much everybody can find. Right. Readily. What approx So I'm assuming that's got to be under the 30 micron number then. Yes. And we're talking averages. Right. right. Exactly. Right. And they're probably going to come in at about 25 to 30 okay. microns. Okay. That's a good way to relate it back to the local yarn store. That's helpful. And so, yeah. I mean, and that's my guess, but um, it's an educated guess. Right. right. And so yarn like that, something that's blended, I would assume that from year to year, the actual type content of, or breed content of the yarn probably changes because they're just going for an average blend and an average feel. So is, is that true? That is true, and you have just asked an absolutely fascinating question. Okay. <laughs> because the more I study fibers, the more I am absolutely amazed at the consistency from year to year of those yarns. Oh, I see. Okay. Excellent. That's good. <laughs> so is that due to the breeding? You know, they've they've found a way to breed so true that it means consistent yarn from year to year? It is a tribute to the yarn classers. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Who take the fleeces and say, this is the quality of this fleece. It goes in this pile to become part of this group of fibers. Oh. Yep. And, and of a whole industrial process of grouping and baling and shipping and testing and then blending so that the end result is consistent and it's part science and part art. Wow. Right. Okay. Now the reason I asked that question is because for me, I, at one time I worked in coffee and I also know that 
for there are coffee companies that have blends and for the green beans the green beans similar to wool aren't consistent from year to year and so they have to bring in different kinds of beans to create a blend that will taste the same year after year so that's yeah. <laughs> that makes sense similar um yet different but that's why I was kind of thinking in that way. So. Exactly the same idea. Yeah. Now, Jeff, yes. another question then to pull it back into the local yarn store and relate it back to, I think, what a lot of our listeners would recognize. What are some of the medium category breeds? What are the, some of the names we might identify with? Okay. Dorset. Uh, Suffolk. Um... Well, I mean, there's there's hundreds, but um, the yarns that are going to end up in the yarn store are generally going to come from the white-faced breeds. Oh, okay. okay. Right. So Dorset, and I'm not talking about Dorset Down or Horn Dorset because there are three Dorset breeds, but the Dorset or Pole Dorset is a really predominant breed in North America. It is white-faced, and it produces a nice, versatile fiber that would be good for these yarns. Um, another one is polypay. Uh, I'm just trying to look through the list here and see. Um, there's a whole bunch of them. Okay. And the reason I say they come from the white-faced breeds for the most part is there are a lot of colored-faced breeds or black-faced breeds, Suffolk being a predominant one, that grow fantastic wool that has some qualities that the others don't. But because they have black legs and faces, some of those fibers can get into the fleece. And if you are processing large quantities of material, um, people don't want to see an off-color fiber in their yellow yarn. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I think Suffolk is, in fact, one of the most underrated fibers on the planet. Um, we've got a lot of it. It has this cool quality that I haven't seen one yet that would felt. There might be one somewhere that did. I never say never. <laughs> but they don't but, felt, correct? But, they do not felt, correct? Right. right. So you can make socks or sweaters that can be machine washed and dried without any additional treatment. Well, that oh, was your wow. example sweater in your class. Your friend kind of threw down the challenge that Suffolk, Suffolk was trash wool, right? Exactly. Yeah, so you yes. sweater and proved that she was incorrect. <laughs> right. Well, and but you've got to have so, you've got to have a mill willing to spin it even though there is the potential of quote-unquote contamination. Okay, oh, that makes sense. Okay. Um, that's another reason that for many years, black sheep were culled from flocks because oh. the fibers might actually accidentally get mixed in with the white fibers. Now, what I like is the flocks that are rainbows, and that's another thing Shetlands have, is they have the rainbow of colors of natural sheep colors. So when you're going to small batch processing, you have a lot more choices about which breeds you're putting in and therefore which qualities you're getting out 
in the yarn, which allows you to tailor your choice of yarn to your end product so that it will work better. Okay. So we call yeah. those more like the luxury blend yarns and the, um, I mean, most, I, I'm assuming most of them are called Merino, but what are some of the other fine wools? I mean, I think that you mentioned Targi as one, Corydale. Targi is one. The Rambouillet. Okay. Rambouillet is a fine wool um, that has more bounce than Merino. Okay. So it comes with similar micron counts, but it's a different different feel in the finished yarn. And I uh, I think I felt that when I knit, I've been knitting this beret, and the the yarn does it feels feels squishy. it almost feels more textured. It's a hard quality to describe, but it's not just that it's squishy squishier, and it could be a result of the, the amount spinning, of spin yeah. and you know the twist given to it. But it does. It has a whole different feel in your hands. It's fascinating. Isn't it wonderful? Yeah, I loved it. <laughs> I loved it. Other ones I think of Targi, of course, you mentioned. And Finn is quite fine in its feel. I'm not sure how, where its micron counts are. They may be a little, little bit coarser technically on paper. But it's always a, a fine-feeling fiber. One of the rare breeds that has a nice, fine aspect to it is Rommeldale, and it has a color variant called CVM, or California Variegated Mutant. Okay. And they are absolutely delightful fibers, and as I said, it's a rare breed. There's only, I think, maybe 100 or 125 of those sheep registered and being tracked right now. I think the numbers are that low. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Some people will tell you that they can't imagine that it's rare because they live near the flocks. <laughs> oh, gotcha. That makes sense. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I need to check those numbers, but I know that it's on the critical list for the Livestock Conservancy. Okay. What about Corydale? Where does that fit into the your categories? Okay. Corydale is a medium wool, but it has a different quality than what's going into most of the generic wool yarns it's a little longer it has a generally a little opener crimp and it's got a little bit of luster to it okay so it's the corydale yarn you have from alpine glow is a very very nice yarn oh yay yeah it's 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 one of my favorites excellent yeah sweet stuff (laughs) another soft one though is cormo Oh, oh, I've just cool. swatched with that. And I have to tell you, of the breeds that I've swatched now, Finn is my hands-down favorite. I have never felt anything softer, and I used a natural, so it's not dyed. It is yep. amazing. Nice. Yeah, I, I'm in love. I'm going yeah, to... Yeah, I remember you showing me the yeah. little piece well, of it. It was feels, very nice. It felt good. It almost feels, because it came direct from the breeder. She breeds the sheep. She... Um, shears, she cards, spins, etc. And it almost feels like there must be natural lanolin left in the yarn. It has the the silkiest, most amazing feeling of any yarn I've ever held in my hands. Hmm. That silkiness is the fiber. Wow! Oh my, so, <laughs> so happy to hear that. <laughs> yeah. No, it's not going to go away. Wow. That's nice. yeah. Well, in terms of the feel of yarns. 
how does spinning and putting a twist on the different types or the different breeds affect it? Um, specifically, we're familiar with woolen spinning and worsted spinning. And if you can tell us a little bit, like how do you or how does someone decide which type of spinning or which type, how do maybe the large yarn suppliers decide which type is going to be better for a certain blend? Okay, good questions. Um, let's start with a difference between woolen and worsted for those who don't know. Woolen yarns are spun from fiber that has been opened out so that it is evenly dense throughout the fiber mass, okay, so you don't have clumps, and yet the fibers are going in all sorts of directions. When you spin it, you end up with a yarn that actually has a lot of air incorporated, so it's warmer because you have more insulation in the air plus fiber combination. Traps more heat. It traps more air. It has a lot of fiber ends sticking out in all directions. So if you are marginal on being able to tolerate the prickliness of a particular fiber, a woolen yarn is not going to be as comfortable to you. Oh, I see. And because the fibers are going in all sorts of directions, they may be more, well, they are more vulnerable to wear, and it may pill a little more. Oh, okay. So is this the quality that a lot of people would refer to as a yarn with a halo? Mm, halo can be something else. Oh, okay. But, yes, it will halo faster for the most part than a worsted yarn. Now, is and Imperial Ranch... Columbia, there. I know that you mentioned that in your class as well. That's one of my favorite bases for worst weight. Right. Is that woolen spun? I need to go get my swatch and look at it. Um, I think so. I think so. It's, but don't quote me. Okay. Don't quote it's me definitely right. lofty. Yeah. No, I'm. I'm pretty sure it is. Uh, so you'll end up with a lighter weight garment for its apparent size also so um it's a little bulkier feeling it is better insulation it's warmer it's not quite as durable and it may prickle a little bit if you got somebody on the border so when you say a lighter weight garment are you saying that there is because of the air yes. there's more uh let's say more yardage to the weight yes okay so if you had, say, um, a woolen spun and a worsted spun shawl of the same weight and you folded them up or you folded in, um, into squares or something like that, the mass of the woolen spun would be greater. Right. Okay. Significantly greater. Okay. okay. Got that. So... <laughs> Going to worsted, it is denser, which is what I was just talking about. Uh -huh. You take those fibers that you're working with and you comb them so that two things happen. One is all of the fibers are parallel. Oh. And you pull out 
any short or irregular bits. So the goal with a worsted preparation is to end up with fibers of approximately the same length throughout that are all parallel. Okay. Okay. So then you spin to maintain that parallel orientation. You end up with a dense yarn that is smooth, that maximizes the durability of that fiber. Okay. And that drapes well. And I'm going to use an example from my real life knitting here. And I'm going to use Madeline Tosh because I think a lot of people are somewhat familiar with it. That's what I was thinking. So Madeline Tosh's vintage base vintage, is a yeah. worsted weight, worsted spun plied yarn. Their Aran base is a worsted weight. I believe it's woolen spun yarn. And the Aran base is also Aran E-R-I-N. E correct. So not Aran weight, but the, the name of the base itself. That's also Imperial Ranch's Columbia. It's the same exact base. Okay. So if I were to knit a sweater, the same exact sweater, if I could get gauge, in both of those bases, I knit the same exact sweater. I know for me yes. that vintage sweater would feel heavy. It would yes. tend to probably pull off of my shoulders because of the weight of the sweater if it was, you know, down to my hips. Versus the Aaron base or the Imperial Ranch base, woolen spun would feel light. It would be warmer. It would not be as sleek looking and as fitted because the drape, like you said, the vintage is going to drape better than the Aaron, but I prefer, I personally prefer the woolen spun bases because they do have that lightness to them. I don't feel weighed down by the sweater. Right. And that might be a factor of what styles of sweater you're working with. Yes. Yes. The longer the sweater, the more that's going to be a factor. Right. And if you work a worsted yarn at a tighter gauge, it will hold its shape better. Anyway, um, you can you can work with a lighter weight yarn. So if you went to a fingering weight worsted spun yarn and knitted yourself a sweater, you might find you liked it a lot. And yeah, I do. I often do. Yeah. <laughs> you're right. You're right. You're, yeah. you're exactly right because we actually, where we live in California, we don't get extreme cold in the winter and we do wear fingering white sweaters all year round here and another thing would be a worsted spun fingering weight in a lace pattern yes yes we do we that do quite that often too well. <laughs> yeah you yeah. just nailed our knitting styles you yeah. just called it perfectly <laughs> well and, and that would be a more durable sweater yes so if you want if you want to wear something 40 years from now and not see pills you're going to pick a worsted spun yarn. And knit it at a tighter gauge. Um, not necessarily. Okay. If it's a well, if it's a well constructed yarn, you don't have to. Okay. Mm -hmm. Good to know also. Yes. Yeah. Now I heard you mention combing or carding. I think you said carding. So carding is when you put all of the fibers into the same direction. No. Yeah. <laughs> That's removed all of the irregular length fibers, etc. So what is combing then? Okay. Carding is when you're making it a fluffy mass that you're going to use for wool and spinning. Okay. So it is it is the fluffy one. Okay. 
Uh, combing is the sleek one. Okay, I had it backwards. Okay. You did. And it's a little confusing because when you are preparing by hand, you will either card for woolen or comb for worsted. Okay. Um, if you're working in industry, you generally card everything and then comb what you're going to do worsted. Oh, so everything starts out carded and then combing would be a secondary process. Yeah. Okay. Now, one thing that we didn't touch on was the staple length and how staple length applies because you just said it, that in the combing process, it would remove fibers of a different length. So how does staple length figure into all of this? Right. I was figuring we would circle around there. Again. <laughs> the shorter staple lengths need to be spun into finer strands so that you have enough twist holding them in the yarn that you have integrity in that yarn. So if you want a yarn made from short staple fibers that is thicker, you will spin multiple strands and ply them together. Okay. If you, if you have longer staple lengths, you have more latitude in how thick your singles can be and still be durable. Okay. So, and the staple length, please correct me if I'm wrong, <laughs> is when they shear the fleece, it's the, the length of each, the individual hairs on the fleece. Yes. Okay. And so in my research, it seemed that different breeds have a general staple length, but wouldn't, yes. wouldn't that rely on how often they're sheared? Yes. <laughs> yes, to all of the above. Okay. okay. So can you describe that? Yeah. For the most part, the finer wools have shorter staple lengths. Okay. Okay. So one of the goals in breeding, in, in developing some breeds, has been to maintain the fineness and get greater staple length. Okay. That so, for example, Bond is a breed where they've been able to maintain fineness and actually get staple lengths of four or five, four or five inches anyway. Now, to get that maximum staple length, no matter what the genetics of the breed are capable of, you need to have good nutrition throughout the year. You have to be lucky with your weather, and you have to shear at a point when you've got that much length. Okay, so it's kind of like raising a crop of vegetables. If the, <laughs> if there's a drought, it's going to affect your harvest, just the same as same in a fleece. Way, yeah. Yes, and a lot of people don't realize that. That makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so getting a good fleece off a sheep or a flock of sheep requires some serious attention on the part of the shepherd or farmer. Okay, So, and that relies on a shearing schedule that is kind of dictated yes. by the, the weather and other factors throughout the year? Yeah, and often by lambing. Oh, okay. Okay, <laughs> okay. so the lambs tend to jump on their mother's backs, <laughs> you know, at a certain point. Also, it can simplify the lambing process to have the fleece out of the way. Oh, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. However, you don't want to shear them while the weather's still bad. Right. right. So... Each shepherd in a particular environment is going to evaluate the breed that they have, its tolerance, their particular ability to provide shelter and other things. And time lambing and shearing so that 
the sheep are safe and healthy. And that may mean that the wool comes off half an inch earlier, whatever. Um, I mean, it could have been longer, but it was shorter. Right, right. Another thing is that with the long wool breeds, the really long wool breeds, they may shear twice a year. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Because the, the wool gets so long that it's not really manageable. Okay, and I, I, my gut instinct told me there was a lot behind the staple length. So thank you very <laughs> yeah. much for describing that. That really makes it, it, it helped me put it into the right little niche in my mind. Okay, so we've got microns, we've got staple length, we've got woolen and worsted spun yarn. I think I'm understanding all of that. All and, of, yeah, and it's, it's fascinating too, and I think you said that in this, in your Know Your Wool class, that it helps you kind of identify your own knitting preferences because I didn't know that the yarn I prefer is called woolen spun. I just knew when I saw it in a store, oh, that's that lofty yarn I really like. And now I understand why it is the way it is and why I like it. Yeah, I'm going through the same sorts of revelations too. I know, it's fascinating because I, I was ignorantly calling myself you know, a somewhat intermediate knitter, but then you don't have any knowledge of the materials you're working with. So this has just been fascinating and wonderful. Thank you so much for the class because without it, I would have remained completely ignorant instead of, you know, <laughs> knowing a little bit now. And you would have missed a lot of fun. I know. Exactly. It's true. Exactly. It really is true. And I think the more I knit, the more I'm curious yes. about all yes. the different aspects of it. So yeah. thank you for your expertise, but we do still have a couple more questions. It yeah. sounds like I'm concluding, but we can. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things that I'm curious about and everybody who works with wool is curious about is if they are caring properly for their garments and accessories and all these wonderful things that they have created out of their woolen Woolen uh, fibers, yeah. Woolen fibers, yes. Yeah, do you have any tips for that? I mean, how do we care for our finished products so that they last for years if we want them to? Yes. Okay, I'm really basic on that myself. Basic is good. Yeah, that's a good answer. Um, I just have common things that I do, and I hand wash unless I know that it's like my suffix socks or my sweater, which I will throw in the washing machine. Mm-hmm. And I put them in the sink. I do use cleansers that are specifically formulated. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like the liquid ones. There's, there's a lot of stuff that wasn't around when I started working with this, and I used to use dishwashing detergent. It still works. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. does shampoo. Uh, but the ones that are specially formulated don't suds up as much. They're easier to rinse out. Right. Um, they just work really well. I'll run warm water that's comfortable with my hands in the sink. I will add some cleanser to it and swirl it around with my hands, and then I will set the woolen item on and press down gently. Okay. Then okay. I walk away and leave it. About how long do you usually let your wool soak? 15, 20 minutes. Okay. Does it hurt it to soak it longer? No. Okay. No. Um, if you're cleaning fleece, whole different conversation. Yes, right. I've heard. Yeah. Right. This, this is finished item. Yeah. No, it doesn't hurt to leave it longer. What you don't want to do, you don't want to shift the temperature quickly. Right. Okay. You don't want to agitate it in the water. Okay. So when I come back to do the next thing, the reason I leave it that long 
is that it actually takes wool that long to kind of soak the water into itself. Okay, that's what I thought. Yeah, so to actually get it all wet, it takes a a little bit. Then I lift it gently in both hands and then squeeze them together to get the soapy water or whatever out. And this is why I don't want suds in there is because it takes more work and I agitate the wool more. Drain it out with my wool on the side, run in clear water, put it in again, let it sink, press it down just lightly, walk away. I usually do two rinses. Oh, really? Yeah, just to make sure everything's out. I know that there are some non-rinse things out there. I, I haven't used them much just because I've got my habit, you know. Right. Okay. Um, and then I squeeze gently, take a big fluffy terry towel, lay it out on that, roll it up like a jelly roll, step on it, rotate again and step again. What I'm trying to do is get as much water as possible out of the fabric. Okay. And then I take another towel, terry cloth, and I pat the wool out to shape on that towel and walk away and leave it. Oh, good. That's what I've been doing. I feel so proud of myself. <laughs> and yeah. I make it back and flip it over at some point if it's thick. Right, so that it dries thoroughly both sides. Yeah. I change my towel out, too, because it, sometimes the towel gets wet underneath, so the yeah. garment's never going to dry. And yeah. conditioning, is it necessary to condition or put anything back into a wool garment? I don't, because I use the gentle washing solutions they're fine, and I do have 40-year-old sweaters. That's great. Wow. Yeah. yeah, that gives me hope that my some of my sweaters will be around that long. Simplicity yeah. is best. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, so do I. It's, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's good to know it doesn't need some exotic treatment. Right. Nope. And nope. And I, I never dry clean. Yeah, I've oh, heard that too, yeah. right? And yeah. what about treating it in terms of keeping critters away from it, like moths and things? Any advice? Yeah, the best thing you can do is keep it clean. Okay. Because moths like dirt and grease. Okay. okay. Um, airing out, you know, at least once a year. Just make sure everything's shaken out. And Okay, moths don't like light. They don't like air. So if you, if you keep moving things around, that's good. If you have stuff that you think you're going to store for a while... Uh-huh. You'll want to make sure it's clean before you store it. Okay. And then seal it. So one of the ways you can store it is in cardboard boxes that have all of their edges sealed. Okay. Mm-hmm. And um, I've heard that. I'm going to try them. The plastic containers from five-gallon things from, like, the Home Depot. Right. Yeah. Right. Work. I'm not all that fond of plastic, but there are times when it's called for. Okay. And I've had some flooding in my house from broken pipes and been glad a few things were in plastic. Oh, my <laughs> So, not that fond of it. Um, they say that the ink that's on newspaper is a mild deterrent for moths. Really? So, layering newspaper in, although it's not going to be an archival quality. So, if you want that, you need to get archival paper. Okay, mm-hmm. I was going to say, I wouldn't want the ink from the newsprint to rub off onto my sweaters either. Mm-hmm. No, you wouldn't. Yeah. No. So um, use that one judiciously. Okay. Have you, what about any type of sachets or anything like that? Have you tried or recommend anything like that? I've used Pennyroyal in the past and think it helps. Um, 
there are some herbal things. Mint, maybe. Uh, cedar has less deterrent effect than we traditionally think that it has, but it's nice and it doesn't hurt. Um, you know, you can use those things as you want to, but the, the most important thing is just to keep the moths out in the first place. Okay. Or, the, you know, the butts okay. out. So or, don't keep you know. your wool in light, dark places, especially if it's dirty. I mean, in dark, <laughs> dark um Air, yeah, dark, yeah. dank places, especially yeah. if it's dirty. Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. and to totally shift gears, now I'm going to actually refer our listeners to your Craftsy class, Know Your Wool, because you gave excellent information on how to source the wool. So That's right. Yeah, you gave excellent information about the resources available to find these different breeds if you aren't seeing what you want in your local yarn store. Mm-hmm. But one thing I did Charlene and I did want to ask you about is how we as fiber crafters, knitters, spinners, crocheters, etc., how can we support the farmers who are doing the rare breed farming of sheep? I mean, what is it we can do as consumers to help continue that? Because you mentioned that there were some very fine micron count fleeces available at one time that aren't available anymore. So if knitters and crafters want to have everything available for future generations. Yeah, what do we need to do now? <laughs> yeah, it's true that we need we need the diversity of wools and we need to maintain them. And some of the ones we actually need to maintain are the coarser ones. Oh, okay. Um, which are really good for rugs and bags right. and cushions. And, you know, if you want to make an iPad case right. that's you know, going to go anywhere with you. You're going to pick a coarse wool. You don't have that option real readily right now. Okay. But what you can do is you can find those breed-specific yarns from either from the farmers and breeders or from another source that's doing small quantities and use them. Play with them. Play with them. <laughs> There's so much fun to be had. Um, there's an organization called the Livestock Conservancy. It actually just changed its name from the American Livestock Breeds Conservancy. And you can go to their website and get a list of the rare breeds that are currently listed in North America. You can get a list of the rare breeds in the UK from the Rare Breeds Survival Trust. And look for those yarns. And check, I mean, I've done my best to get information available. So it's like, okay, what do I want to work with? Um, let's see, here's a rare breed. It is, say, Guta. No, well, that's Swedish. Okay, I'm going off, off base here already. Um, say the, say the, uh, Rommeldale. Okay, or CVM even. Yeah, and CVM is a part of Rommeldale. It used to be separate, but there are so few that they've thumped them together. Long history there. Anyway, uh, find somebody who's making CVM yarn, get a skein, swatch it up, see what you think of it, start playing with it. Or get some caracal. Now, caracal is a very sturdy fiber. It felts fantastically. Um, it's not so great for next to the skin, but it's really durable. You could make cushions or, you know, a pad to put on the back seat of your car for your dog to be on, and it would never, you know, it's like never wear out. Oh. Uh, find the stuff and play with it. Um, I made myself a little bag out of caracal and felted it. And my iPod fits perfectly in it. I can sling it around my shoulder. It's got a long strap on it. it I just love it. Nice. Yeah. 
So one of the things to look at, and we were talking woolen and worsted earlier, and one of the things to look at when you're experimenting with them is how they handle color work and how they handle texture work. Because the sturdier and coarser and worsted spun fibers are going to work really well in texture. That doesn't mean, doesn't mean you can't do color work with them at all. They do really well with that. The woolen ones are going to fluff up and fill the spaces in color work. Anyway, play with it. Play with it, play with it, play with it. Because um, I'm thinking of color work in woolen spun and a color work in worsted. I'm thinking of it in like Rambouillet and, or Navajo Churro or Caracol, and every one of them is going to give you a different result. And my, my beret that I just knit in Rambouillet is color work. So, yeah. And I, I just blocked it yesterday. So I'm looking forward to seeing how it fluffs up and how it changed in the blocking process. Well, for really clear defined color areas, a worsted yarn will do better for you. For one that blends them a bit and makes a really integrated final fabric, woolen. Um, I mean, I can talk for, for weeks on this. <laughs> <laughs> But, but what you can do to help keep the diversity around is find some and play. Okay. <laughs> okay, I'm already... Yeah. Yeah, the Monterey Fleece and Fiber Show is this weekend, and Charlene and I have been utterly unable to find out anything about when, where, how, etc. And I'm so disappointed because after watching your class the craftsy class all i want to do is go touch it all and see yeah. yeah i mean it's only an hour away and i really want to go so i'm gonna to have to call yeah, yeah now that it's actually started mm-hmm. i don't think that the highlights of that from a crafting perspective are happening yet but you that's supposed to be a great show that's what i've heard so yeah yeah i think i'm gonna to have to try to make it there this weekend because it only happens once a year mm-hmm. <laughs> one time a year and hopefully i have some tentative plans to be at the estes park show next year so hopefully i'll get to meet you that's great i'm often there and they usually have a specific breed show in conjunction with that festival and it changes from year to year so there will be a lot of one breed there, oh, and then smaller amounts of other breeds. Um, it's a great show. It's not overwhelming. Oh, okay. It's very, it's very diverse and rich in its offerings. Well, and I've heard also that it's a beautiful surrounding area. It is. Yeah. It's, it's in my backyard. <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah. That's one of the drawing forces for me is that it just seems like a beautiful place to visit as well. Yep. Yep. There's, there's really good um, Dibalay yarn. There's great Merino, uh, good Navajo churro. I mean, I'm thinking of the regular people who are there. And I'm thinking yarns. I'm not thinking fleeces. Okay. Uh, so if you, I mean, you browse around, look carefully. Because sometimes it'll be hiding. But there's a lot of really good stuff there. Okay. Good. That sounds great. Well, once again, completely enamored with the whole subject of Know Your Wool Now. I thank you so much. And my friend Maggie, who actually recommended your class to me. Because, again, if I hadn't stumbled onto that, I would just still be not having as much fun as I am right now. That's (laughs) true. Can't can't recommend that enough. And we hope that our listeners will go over to Craftsy and sign up for Deb's class over there. And also to check out the new books. And we actually have a copy 
of the field guide on the way here, and we will be reviewing that in an upcoming episode very soon. We're very excited about getting a glimpse into that one because it's brand new. It just hit the market, right? Yeah, absolutely. I just got my copies a couple days ago. Yeah, I was going to say, I think it's, yeah, just this week, brand spanking yeah. new. Yeah. Well, Deb, thank you so much for sharing your four decades of wool wisdom with us. We really, we really, really appreciate, appreciate it. it. We, well, thanks, Gail and Charlene. I've enjoyed it a lot. Okay. We have so much to learn. And I know. We're just we're starting. even more excited. So. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> thank you so much for your time, Deb. We'll thank talk to you, you later. Okay. okay. Bye. Hello, we hope that you enjoyed that interview with Deb Robson. I know we did. Absolutely. And we're butting in to the end of the episode to announce who won the Craftsy Class giveaway. We had quite a few entries and we did the random number generator and number seven, who is Gwen, Gwen Schweitzer. Congratulations, you won the Craftsy Class. So please PM Charlene on Ravelry and give her your real email address, right? Just. Just PM me on Ravelry, Gwen, and send me your email address, and I will get your email address to the wonderful folks at Craftsy who have donated the class, and they will give you probably a little promotional code. And next episode, we will be announcing the winners of the Fall Colors Knit Along. That thread will be closed on Sunday, September September 22nd, 22nd at midnight or the next morning depending on if i'm awake at midnight <laughs> or not and then do we want to tell them episode 47 our upcoming episode 47 we have an interview with clara parks so we are really excited about that and hope that you will tune in for the continuing wool series yes thanks everyone awesome 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 <laughs> happy knitting happy knitting bye-bye you can find us on itunes at yarniacs podcast Visit our blog with show notes at yarniacs.com. We have a growing Ravelry group, and you can follow us on Twitter at Yarniacs. Goodbye and good knits.